1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC, and here is your top five at five. Go Big Janet. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen making a push for more stimulus, saying there's a bigger risk in not doing enough. The Biden administration taking a key step toward restarting nuclear talks with Iran. We will talk about the implications of that. Power slowly returning to Texas, but the damage of this week's deep freeze could have a long-term impact on the nation's energy industry. Bitcoin closing in on a market value of $1 trillion. And another soaring number tag to watch, that is lumber. Wood prices doing something they have never done before. We'll tell you about it on this Friday, February 19th, as Worldwide Exchange begins right now. Well, good Friday morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thank you for joining us on this Friday. Here's how your money in the global markets are setting up their day. Dow Futures, They are slightly higher right now, not going to make too much of it again at this hour, thin trading, yada, 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 you know, but we are up 50 points following yesterday's decline. Now for the week, the Dow is hanging on to get this, a 0.1% gain for the week, 0.1, pretty much flatline there. Most major averages are a little bit lower this week, so today will really determine whether or not it will be another higher week for the Dow and other indexes. It certainly has been a higher week for many fossil fuels. Natural gas up nearly 6% since Monday. And that's just, of course, the NYMEX traded price. Other prices a lot higher. oil hovering right around $60 a barrel, a little bit below that right now at $59.38. And by the way, watch your local gasoline prices. Analysts say that refineries shut by this week's freeze in the south will take some time to get back up and running at full speed. We'll get more on all this with Halima Croft coming up in a few minutes. But once again, the hottest asset class, what else? It's the cryptos, Bitcoin, hitting an all-time record above 52,000 earlier this week. And look at it right now, 52,700. Here's the thing, when we talk about cryptos, we can put whatever we want in the teleprompter and it's going to be different when we show it. That's how fast they move. We're up 1.5% on Bitcoin right now. Closing in on 53,000. By the way, Ethereum, it is up 39% just in February. A little lower right now, but Ether has been even hotter than Bitcoin. All right, now to a few of your other top stories on this Friday. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen making a push for a big stimulus package. Here's what she said on CNBC. I
2: think it's very important to have a big package addresses the pain this has caused, 15 million Americans behind on their rent, 24 million adults and 12 million children who don't have enough to eat, small businesses failing. Um, You know, I think the price of doing too little is um, much higher than the price of doing something big. We think that the benefits will far outweigh the costs in the longer run.
1: The other big story out of Washington, yesterday's House Financial Services Committee hearing on the trading frenzy surrounding GameStop and other stocks with heavy short interest. Robinhood, CEO Vlad Tenev, spoke about his firm's role while Citadel CEO Ken Griffin defended a controversial Wall
3: Street practice known as payment for order flow. We don't consider that gamification. We know that investing is serious and we're investing in All of the educational tools and customer support to help people on their investing journey.
4: The idea that I use social media to promote GameStop stock to unwitting investors and influence the market is preposterous.
5: We simply play by the rules of the road. Payment for order flow has been expressly approved by the SEC. It is a customary practice within the industry. The
6: GameStop situation is proof that the retail investors are revolutionizing the market.
3: Um, But they exploited an opportunity, you know, uh, around
1: short interest and and the way that was approached. And I think, you know, us at Melvin will adapt
5: and I think the whole industry will have to adapt.
1: And now we will have much more on the hearing later on this hour. And at 840 a.m. Eastern, do not miss a CNBC exclusive with Citadel CEO Ken Griffin. All right, now to some of the other macro stories out there and your markets. There really seems to be one big question surrounding the red-hot U.S. stock market. Has the reopen recovery already been fully priced into equities or maybe overpriced it? Joining us now is Medley Global Advisors, Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy, Ben Emmons. Ben, it's a very simple question. Has the market, we're all excited about the spring and summer,
7: has the market gotten ahead of itself? Morning Brian, I actually don't think they, that the market has, because if you, if you look at that reopening trade that we've been talking about in the past year, there's still a part of the economy that's shut off, right? So for example, you, I think you put it out recently yourself on, on uh, social media, you're gonna go to an a in-person live event, right? There are companies that are, are listed that are, are about live events, and you know we know that we can't do that right now, but the reopening is, is I think, going to happen fully in the sense that as the vaccinations completely roll out, businesses like life events and entertainment will really see a revival. So I think that part has not been priced in. Of course, the big index is is up, uh, quite a bit, and it's a lot about technology and stay at home. Maybe there, there's some leveling off now. You can see that in, the, in those major indices, as interest rates are going to rise, that's going to maybe put a bit damper on the big index. But in the reopening, there's a lot of opportunities still left.
1: Yeah, and where are those opportunities, Ben? And we got some good news, by the way, on vaccine supplies. I posted it to my Twitter account last night at Sully CNBC that maybe we're going to see this huge surge in vaccinations coming, which is, fingers crossed, sort of good news for everybody here and around the world. But are you looking at cruise lines? Are you looking at uh, you know, a stadium, Madison Square Garden, wrestling? Is it the stuff where you're literally jammed on top of each other? Is that what you're talking about is the maybe the last to come back?
7: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the last that has to come back still. And yeah, look at those particular stocks, and I'm not the analyst on it, but you know, just as an example, you know, they are down still about 20-25% from a year ago, whereas a lot of other, let's say, major airlines, hotels are up more, anticipating this reopening. So I think that part of the economy which was shut off, which is still difficult to do at this moment. Uh, could have a revival because as you said the, the vaccine is really impacting already the economy and it's going to be seeing a massive rollout take the example of the uk now overnight the services bmi came out hugely strong and the uk has made a huge advancement in, in the in the role of its vaccine so you can see there how that impacts that side of the economy quickly same as in israel so i think in the united states the same thing What's then left well yeah anything that we couldn't do for a year will probably have a lot of opportunities. So the names that you mentioned will have upside from here.
1: Yeah, and what about the yield curve and more particularly 10-year treasury yields? There's been a lot of talk about how yields might, predicting, might be predicting inflation or something that could be, to your, to your job title, a global macro risk. Does, do rapidly rising, well, at least for the bond market anyway, Ben, do rapidly rising yields
7: concern you about equities? Indeed, if they rapidly rise, and, and I think that's the distinction to make. At the moment, we're sitting at 1.3 on the 10-year. That is actually the low that we had in 2019, 16, and 12, when we had a crisis then. So this is a resistance level. I think if you really break through that with a major boost, to say that we're going to go from 1.3 to 2% in a, in a short order, then probably the equity market will not trade well. But at the same time, as the yield curve has steepened, as inflation expectations have picked up, nominal yield should rise too, the 10 year should move higher from here because the economy is already at a 4% or higher growth, probably a bit strongly even in the second quarter. So as long as that's orderly, I think the stock market will not react too negatively to it. Um, And I think also noted that the real interest rate has now moved from negative 1% to say negative 0.85% is a sign of that the bond market has accepted that the economy will normalize, it will grow faster. So... That is, I think, still positive for the, for the equity markets. If it's
1: too rapid, then it, then it could be friction. Ben Emmons, Medley Global Advisors, Ben, a pleasure to have you back on. We'll see you soon. Have a good weekend. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, right now, we've got some big breaking news from Uber out of London. Juliana Tadelbaum joining us now with the details of a UK Supreme Court decision. Juliana, what do you have?
8: Brian, good morning. Huge news for Uber. Just crossing the wires moments ago, Uber has lost its UK Supreme Court case on workers' rights. This is a huge blow to Uber. And this means that workers at the company are now entitled to various uh, rights. Currently, Uber drivers in the UK are treated as self-employed, meaning that they are only afforded minimal protections To take you back a little bit to understand how we got to today, uh, back in 2016, two Uber drivers filed a case against the ride-hailing company, which Uber had then appealed several times in Britain's lower courts. Today, the Supreme Court finally weighed in, which was Uber's final resort. So this is a case that has been ongoing for several years now. The case does echo the uh, Uber's fight with Californian regulators over the employment rights of its drivers there, and this loss for Uber could jeopardize its business model and certainly could have wider ramifications for the gig economy. Uh, Today's ruling is thought to have huge consequences for the UK's gig economy. Just to put some numbers out there for you, it's estimated to have a workforce of more than 5.5 million people, so huge implications here. Uh, a lot of businesses could be affected by the precedent that this sets. So a major blow to Uber, and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously to dismiss Uber's appeal. So it gives you a sense of how much conviction there is in the U.K. that granting rights to Uber's workers is the right thing to do. Brian?
1: And that stock is down about 3.5% right now. We will watch it all morning long. A big ruling for Uber and not the kind that they wanted. Juliana, thank you very much. All right, outside of Uber, why don't we get the latest now on today's Washington Agenda, which will actually be centered in Kalamazoo, Michigan. NBC's Tracy Potts, who is not, I believe, in Kalamazoo. With a look at the big star, are you in Kalamazoo? Tracy. (laughs)
2: No, no, I'm in the home studio talking about Kalamazoo, and the president wasn't able to get out yesterday either. He was stuck here because of the weather. He's hoping to make up that trip today. But before he goes, he's planning to tell world leaders about a big multi-billion-dollar investment that the U.S. wants to make in poor countries around the world that have not seen one dose of this coronavirus vaccine. This is where drug maker Pfizer produces coronavirus vaccine. President Biden visits the Michigan plant today after announcing at this morning's G7 summit that the U.S. is releasing $4 billion already approved by Congress to distribute vaccine to poor countries. 130 countries haven't received any as new versions of the virus continue to spread. How close are you to finding a a new vaccine to handle the South African variant?
3: Well, that likely will take several months.
2: New variants of COVID-19 have appeared in 1,300 people in 42 states. Pfizer admits its vaccine may be less potent against the South African strain.
5: We are preparing for the possibility that there might need to be a change in the vaccine later.
2: Also today,
4: we're going to rejoin the Paris Climate Accord.
2: The U.S. officially rejoins the worldwide climate agreement that former President Trump pulled out of on his first day in office.
1: I've been on the phone for the last few days talking to our allies in Europe, elsewhere around the world. Uh, And they are welcoming us back.
2: John Kerry, Biden's special envoy for climate, hosts a global engagement summit today focused on sustainability, including limits on global emissions. Now, you might remember the president signed that climate order on Inauguration Day, hours after he left the Capitol, but it wasn't effective until today.
1: Tracy Potts, you know, my goal there was actually just to say Kalamazoo as many times as possible, and I, th- and I think we got it. We were trying for five, and <laughs> if we didn't, we did it. Kalamazoo. Have a good weekend, Tracy Potts. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's Friday, folks. All right, when we come back, a lot of big stories impacting the energy industry right now from the U.S. rebeginning Iran nuclear talk to the power situation in Texas, and there is no one better to talk about all of this. And RBC Salima Croft, she will join us next. Very busy hours still ahead. Worldwide Exchange returns. Dow futures up 75. Well, the good news is that the lights are coming back on for millions of residents in Texas who lost power. But utility officials say that limited rolling blackouts are still possible if electricity demand rises. All this is natural gas production across Texas dropped about 30%, which is making it hard for power companies to find the gas they need to run their power plants, at least at prices perhaps they or their consumers can afford. And that is not all that is going on in energy. There is also the big looming issue... What to do about Iran and the nuclear talks. Let's tie this all together like nobody else can, except for Halima Croft, global head of commodity strategy, at RBC Capital Markets, and a CNBC contributor. How'd you like that intro, Halima? It is true. It is true, by the way. Yeah. Um, it is. Well, it's true. I'm a contributor, with, yes. Yes. It, you, no, all the other. Come on, Halima. Uh, way too modest because you put out these great reports on the big picture and what's going on in Texas. Let's start there. 40% of U.S. oil production, something like that, got knocked offline. Yeah. Nat gas is down. The question is this. Will what happened in Texas, while heartbreaking and terrible on so many levels right now for so many families, will that have any longer-term impact on oil or oil policy?
10: Well, I mean, certainly pushed oil prices to 13-month highs. It reignited debates about the U.S. You know, power sector, We are having, you know, even when we have conditions ease in Texas, I mean, this issue of extreme weather, as we saw with the California wildfires, is not going away and opening this fierce debate over, you know, what is your ideal energy mix as you head into the transition, as we saw. Big debate over the role of renewables, big debate over, you know, what was the culprit in terms of was it wind, was it gas, was it all of the above? And so I don't think this is going to go away in terms of these debates about the role of renewables in the US energy mix.
1: Yeah, and and the sad part is, Halima, while while people were literally still trying to figure out where to get heat and often water, it became political. It became this political football. People are literally arguing back and forth about renewables and fossil fuels. Can we just get the heat on and then we can try to fight about, you know, whose, quote, fault? Yeah, whose fault it was. By the way, great article in the Texas Tribune. I tweeted out that that we were, according to ERCOT, Halima, minutes perhaps away from a month long blackout on the grid. We talk about stimulus. okay? we talk about stimulus. Do you think there's an opportunity here for investors, RBC? Right. You guys want to make money. That's kind of the point to invest in the energy And power grid, will that be a great place to invest the next five or 10 years?
10: Well, I mean, I think this is going to be, I mean, you look at the Biden energy plan. I mean, it's a huge focus on, you know, pushing investment into renewables, into wind, into solar. This is actually somewhere we thought there was sort of bipartisan support because look where these wind farms are. So I think what's going to be very interesting as we go into congressional action on the Biden energy plan, you know, does this impact in any way the effort to provide those tax breaks to wind and solar? Again, something that we thought was very, very bipartisan. What does it mean about natural gas? Again, under the Obama administration, there was a lot of discussion about natural gas being your key transition fuel to reach those Paris Climate Accord targets, dealing with coal displacement. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this impacts those debates as we think about the legislative agenda for this year.
1: Why isn't anybody talking about nuclear? And I'm not talking about the Iran talks. We'll get to that in a second. I mean, oh. nuclear power plant. I mean, nobody, nobody talks about nuclear anymore.
10: I, mean, I think policymakers talk about nuclear. I don't think it's not something that is necessarily on TV shows all the time. But this, again, is where I think there is bipartisan support. for reaching these ambitious climate goals. I think there's support both on the Republican and on the Democratic side for you know, advanced civilian nuclear technology. I mean, there are concerns still about you know accidents, especially after what happened with Fukushima. But again, I think this is an area of broad bipartisan support in order to reach these ambitious net zero goals.
1: President Biden has said he will likely restart talks over the nuclear deal with Iran. What would be the best case outcome for the United States and Iran in any such talks and or some kind of a deal and possibly bringing Iran back into the folds, which, by the way, could increase their oil exports, perhaps. They don't have to do it surreptitiously in many ways, which could then drive the price down. What do you think will be the the outcome here, Halima?
10: Well, Brian, what's so interesting is we have all these headlines out this morning saying the U.S. is willing to sit down with the P5 plus one negotiators to try to restore the JCPOA nuclear deal, the 2015 nuclear deal. But here's the issue. There still is a big gulf between what the Iranians want at the moment and what the U.S. wants. The U.S. says in order for there to be any significant sanctions relief, Iran has to roll back all the advances they've recently made in their nuclear restart. But the issue of course is, you know, will Iran actually halt those activities? And one key thing to watch for is on February 23rd, the Iranians have said they are gonna stop snap inspections of their facilities if they do not get sanctions relief. So I think we're actually coming to a head in these negotiations, and I'm not sure it's going to be smooth as we initially thought, and the return of those barrels could actually be delayed.
1: Well, hard to believe, but February 23rd, only four days away. To your point, Halima, this may be coming to a head. So much going on both in Texas, locally, and as well as Global Macro as well. Halima Croft tying it together like nobody else can. Halima, have a great day, a good weekend, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. All right. On deck, your morning RBI is about how money may actually grow on trees and why it's bad news if you want to build a deck or do a home renovation project this summer. And of course, this month is Black History Month. And so we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors and friends. Here's Courtney Gibson with her take on closing the racial wealth gap.
9: In order to close the racial wealth gap in America that sits at around $10 trillion, access has to happen, opportunities have to occur, and people have to sponsor, not just mentor our young people, to help them to get into positions for growth.
3: Welcome back. I'm Philip Mena in New York. As many Texans struggle to keep warm, one of their senators is taking a lot of heat over his travel plans. Ted Cruz was caught on camera boarding a plane to Cancun, Mexico, making the optics worse. A source familiar with Cruz's travel arrangements tells NBC News that the senator was originally scheduled to return on Saturday, but he rebooked his flight after the controversy erupted. A trip to paradise landed one couple in The Slammer. Two tourists are accused of bribing a Honolulu airport screener to bypass quarantine rules. John Troll White and Nadia Bailey allegedly offered the employee $3,000 to pass through without having to quarantine. Well, it didn't work. The employee notified authorities and both were arrested on suspicion of bribery. They were released and sent back home to Louisiana. And NASA's Perseverance Mars rover landed safely on the red planet late yesterday. On board, a four-pound mini helicopter and a microphone so we can hear what Mars sounds like. The rover is heading to Jezero Crater, which was a massive lake billions of years ago. Perseverance will drill into rock and soil, searching for evidence of ancient microbial life. The samples will likely return to Earth in 10 years. Keep it right here. More Worldwide Exchange after the break.
1: All right, welcome back. Now let's get more on that virtual and often a little bit odd GameStop congressional hearing yesterday. The heads of Robin Hood, Reddit, Citadel, and even the Reddit username Roaring Kitty being questioned by members of Congress. Many answers seemed scripted. Some of the questions were, well, a little bit out there. Did we learn anything at all? We're joined by Jimmy Pethokoukis, American Enterprise Institute Economic Policy Analyst, CNBC contributor, and... Caleb Silver, Editor-in-Chief at Investopedia. And, uh, you know, Caleb, I'll begin with you because you and I worked in TV together a long time ago. And as a TV guy, were you watching this and thinking, first, we got to get back in person, right? Because they they would ask a question and I felt like they were, you know, the, the Redditors or Ken Griffin were like looking up at something being written for them. What did you make of the actual proceeding itself?
5: Actually, Brian, I thought that was some of the best business news TV I've seen in 25 years. You and I have been covering this for a long time. The Martha Stewart hearings, uh, the, the uh, Madoff hearings. This was so entertaining uh, for so many reasons. When you have Roaring Kitty on the same hearing as Ken Griffin of Citadel Securities, you know you have something interesting. But what we learned is that our regulators and politicians on this House Financial Services Committee don't really understand how markets work that well. There was so much explaining that needed to happen, and there were so many people that had the wrong perception of what was actually happening between Robinhood, its customers, its market makers, and the short sellers, that it needed a re-education for this entire committee to understand really how markets work if they wanna regulate them effectively. We're not not gonna see much out of this, but calls for investigation and some table-pounding, but it was very entertaining.
1: Oh, okay. He has a slightly different view, Jimmy. Number one. Okay, so what was your take on it? And I agree with Caleb's point that it was entertaining in just sort of a bizarre way. First off, when did pretty much everybody but Ken Griffin is born in the 80s now? I'm starting to feel really, really old. Is there a 40 under 40 for congressional hearings? I have no idea. Uh, But I felt in some ways like yesterday was kind of more about social media than the stock market.
4: Right. In in a way, it sort of reminded me a lot of these tech hearings where you have Congress folks very upset about, you know, different opinions about what's wrong with tech. They moderate too little, they moderate too much. And at the end of the day, no one quite uh, wants to do. I mean, my one, I probably my biggest takeaway from that entire hearing was that a lot of people in Congress should probably be in index funds. They clearly have very little understanding of individual (laughs) trading risk. Those look like S&P 500 indexers to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, Caleb, to that point, and listen, this is a rather, I'm not going to knock Congress for once, I guess, because this is a rather obscure corner of the market. What we're talking about here involves people named, you know, DFV and, and Roaring Kitty, same guy, by the way, and sort of these odd things, but they're talking about anonymity on the, you know, on message boards. And there was a lot of questions that kind of veered, In that direction, ultimately, whether it's markets or social media or I'll just call it media because that's what it is now. Do you think any new regulation gets done?
5: Well, what's what's clear is that we're in the Wild West and that there is so much activity that's going on on these online forums. And we've seen in the last month, in the last six weeks, how much force day traders and mass can bring to the market and actually affect it. They used to just make some noise around the edges. Now they can actually move markets, move securities, and gather the attention of institutional investors. But what this didn't do yesterday was bring trust back to the markets. We were on a couple of weeks ago talking about a survey we ran that shows that our readers who are very active investors trust the stock market less than they do six months ago, than they did six months ago. Furthermore, they also don't want their brokers telling them when they can and can't trade. So they trust it less, but they don't want that regulation. They don't want to be told, and they don't want the guardrails telling them when they can right. they can't get in and out. Of a trade, that's going to be a problem going forward.
1: Yeah, you know, Jimmy, I felt like also one of the questions, and I don't want to get too wonky, especially at this hour of the morning. A lot of our audience may not know. If we have an analyst on a stock, and we're going to have one on after the break, by the way, they have to, we have to get reams of compliance. That do you own this? Do your does your aunt own this stock? They have you know pages and exams. And, you know, where you can go on a message board and say, buy this and here's my take. By the way, nothing new. It's been going on for a long time. Do you think there are fiduciary responsibilities to some of the more heavily followed people on the Internet?
4: Well, I'm not going to have average people who go on the Internet having to start list what stocks they own. That seems like an amazing invasion of their, of their privacy. But I think, listen, people are not idiots, uh, the Wall Street bets people knew they were taking a big gamble. They're taking it for kind of a, a strange purpose, and they they pretty much got what they what they paid for. They 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 sent these stocks on a wild ride. They caused a big fuss in the markets. Uh, people were aware of that, uh, and I think that you're aware if someone's just on, on a message board talking about a stock, they may own that stock. Listen, I just think Congress gets very upset at things like this, but people are not idiots. We have human agency. That's a good think, think tank phrase. Uh, They knew what they were getting into. Congress may not have understood, but people did. And just because there's a problem, maybe, and just because some people lost money doesn't mean we need regulations. And I don't think anybody watching the hearing had a lot of confidence that those folks were going to put in good regulations that would help people without also making it harder to be involved in the market.
1: Uh, fair points. Markets are going to market, and this has been going on for a long time, and maybe we should not be surprised. Jimmy Petakukis Caleb Silver, a great debate, guys, and we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Have a good weekend, gentlemen. Now, back by popular demand, and speaking, by the way, of markets and insiders, your weekly insider buying segment is back, breaking down the five companies seeing the most buying by their corporate insiders during this week. All the data coming courtesy of InsiderScore.com. And remember, on a macro level, most of these stocks have been outperforming the broader market the last couple of months. So listen up. All right, here you go. You ready? Counting you down five to one. Company five, CVS Health, a board member who is also the former CEO of Beckton Dickinson, by the way, picking up 216,000 worth of CVS. The fourth most insider buying this week, Everest Reinsurance. Board member buying 244,000 there. That beaten up stock. It's down like 35% in a year. Stock number three, cosmetics company Cody. Multiple buyers coming in last week, snapping up 940,000 worth of that. That stock, by the way, the one that is down 37% in a year. Stock number two, Fiserv. Chairman Dennis O'Leary, not Dennis Leary the comedian, buying $1 million worth of FISV. And take note, Insider Score says, this is only O'Leary's second buy since two weeks before the market bottomed after the financial crisis in 2009. Second buy in 12 years and some darn good timing back then. But the company with the most insider buying this week is KKR, a director buying $1.25 million of the private equity firm, and like the one before him, he's made a few well-timed buys in the past, so watch that name. There you go. The five most insider buys, CVS, Everest Re, Cody, Fiserv, and KKR. We're going to try, try to do this every week. All right, coming up, there are conflicting headlines on the vaccines and some of the new virus strains. So what is the real story? Do they work? The top analyst will answer that and more on the vaccine rollout next Welcome back. Well, a study this week found that the B135 evolution of the coronavirus, the so-called South Africa strain, as you know it, could reduce the protective antibodies brought on by the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Now, that study led to a lot of scary headlines, some of which suggesting effectively that the vaccine does not work against that strain. But is that really the case? Let's get some clarity on this and the so-called variants and vaccines and bring in Jeffrey Porges, senior biotech analyst, at SSVB Lyrink. And Jeffrey, I appreciate it. Read your report with great interest, and I appreciate you coming on. And, and certainly, I am no doctor, no scientist. But reading through your report, it seemed to me some of the, with all due respect to the media, some of the headlines may have been a bit off. Tell us what you think
0: the actual findings really were. Yeah, look, this is very complicated, Brian. The, uh, the, the, the fact is that there was about a 60% reduction in the Immunizing or in protective activity um, of of the uh, people who've been immunized with the BioNTech vaccine against the B three five one or one three five one South African variant. So it's about a two thirds reduction, but that doesn't mean that there's no immunity. You know, it's possible that up to a third of people don't have good protection, but two thirds do have good protection, and this is very consistent with what we've seen from some of the other vaccine companies who've said, look. You don't get the 95 percent protection that you get, for example, against the original virus, but you're still probably going to get something in the range of 50 percent, which is you know, still much better than nothing. So um, I don't think that we should uh, except, expect that there's zero protection, but equally, um, there's going to be some, definitely some uh, diminution of what we would get.
1: Yeah and and again if please if I'm wrong about anything Jeffrey cuz this is very complicated stuff and I and I'm trying to learn it for the last few months and as I understand for first off I think general vaccine the flu vaccine is 59% effective overall so people expect vaccines to be 100% effective that's that's not the case maybe with the exception of you know smallpox but otherwise they're not correct I mean you're not going to get more than 60 to 80% pretty much on most vaccines anyway and, and I guess the study, which is very small, did not measure any of that natural T cell response
0: that may actually make it a little yeah. a little better. No, that's absolutely correct. So, uh, look, there's a very wide range of protection conferred from conferred by vaccines. Uh, as you point out, flu vaccines, depending upon the year, can be something between 60 and 70 percent protective. Other vaccines that we have, for example, measles vaccine might be as high as 90 to 95 percent protective. Um, so, you know, the, as you will recall, the FDA sort of put a line in the sand and said 60% is what we need to see um, to approve a vaccine. And I think that that's a, a pretty widely accepted standard. Now, as you, you also point out, there are a number of ways that the body protects us uh, against future exposure to a virus or a bacteria or anything. It's not just down to antibodies. We have a whole other side of the immune system called the cell mediated immunity, which is T cells and and they respond very effectively, but they respond more slowly. So one of the things that could easily play out is that we retain cell-mediated immunity, uh, specifically from the T cells, but that that takes longer. So we get protection against severe disease, but we don't Mm -hmm. get the protection against infection. So uh, as you point out, this experiment did not look at any aspect of, of T cells. It didn't really look at functional immunity. All it looked at was the antibody titers in the plasma of the individuals who'd been vaccinated and whether you could dilute that plasma and still suppress the the replication of the virus in a cell culture system. So it's a very isolated experiment. um, And and as I said, practically, it's a two-thirds reduction, but it ignores the way the whole human body responds to a virus or bacteria.
1: Yeah, and we need to take it as such. And very quickly, there was an article last night that one shot of Pfizer may be up to 95% effective. That came out of a study, I believe, in Israel. The bottom line is this. We should be bullish on that Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine against uh, a number of variants, or at least partially so?
0: Well, the the immediate answer is that we should be bullish on any vaccine because at this stage of the pandemic, particularly in this country and and indeed in most other developed uh, countries, Any vaccine is better than no vaccine. So that's the the first thing. Um, Secondly, in terms of the mRNA, particularly in the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine specifically, um, it's very effective now against most of the circulating viruses. It retains some effectiveness against these variants, such as the South Africa variant, the Brazilian variant. Um, I wouldn't certainly Mm be recommending one dose of vaccine. But the last thing is they can change these vaccines very, very quickly. It's simply a matter of switching out a few nucleic acids and then remaking the vaccine. So we're predicting that by midsummer, we could have a second-gen vaccine that contains these variants if it's necessary. So um, I think we should really panic here.
1: Yeah, wow. Uh, And a reason to be optimistic and hopeful as cases come down, whether tied to vaccinations or not, cases and hospitalizations are on the way down worldwide, by the way. For the most part, Jeffrey Porges, SVB Larrant. Great stuff. Appreciate you coming on, Jeffrey. Have a great day. Terrific. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye, Brian. All right. On deck. Yes, pun intended. We're talking lumber prices and why you you may want to put off that new deck you've been eyeing on your house. That's next. Time now for your morning RBI. And would you believe that lumber prices are on fire. I'm sorry, okay? The May contract for lumber blasting over 1000 bucks per 1,000 board foot on Thursday, something we've never talked about, I don't think, ever. Not only is this a new record, but it's more than doubled just a few months ago. The CME contract, up 63% in 90 days. What's even more amazing about this price run is that it kind of shouldn't be happening. Canadian wood tariffs have come down, so there's more imported competition. And the weather in the south in particular has made logging easier. Either way, lumber, it's been solid. The only commodity to come close to the price gain is actually steel, up nearly as much. Now, this could all be good news for investors in lumber, assuming there are those. But bad news for one industry, home building. They use more wood than anybody. This is going to drive up costs big time. And here's what's random but interesting. With a 63% return in three months, lumber, if it was a stock would be the seventh best-performing stock in the S&P 500 over the past three months. Money may not grow on trees, but maybe money is trees, at least right now. Random but interesting. All right, consumer staples have been a big focus for investors over the last year, but over that time frame, they have been vastly underperforming the overmarket. Dominic Chu, a man who I'm going to call up after this is over and talk about opening up a tree farm, Is here now on what is driving the lack of action and which consumer staple stocks may be the key to the sector's success, Dom.
11: So, Brian, here's what I would say right now. If a tree falls in the stock market, but an investor is not there to hear it, does it really fall? Anyway, consumer staples, like you pointed out, one of the underperforming sectors so far. If you take a look at the markets overall versus the S&P 500, the consumer staples in the last year up a very modest 2 percent. Meanwhile, the overall market is up upwards of 15 to 16 percent in that same time frame. If you take a look at the outperformers and underperformers, Take a look at the names that have been doing really well during this particular span of time for consumer staples. One's leading the way higher. If you take a look at those stocks, it's Kraft Heinz, Estee Lauder, and Monster Beverage, each up between 32 and almost 42 percent. Those are your three top performers driving a lot of the outperformance in parts of that consumer staples market. Meanwhile, these three names are the ones that have been really kind of dragging things down. You take a look at shares of, say, Lamb Weston, also other ones out there like here. Here we go. Molson Coors and Tyson Foods. Each of these is down anywhere from 13 to 19 percent. You're real laggards there. But if you want to keep an eye, Brian, on two stocks in particular in this sector, because of the market cap weighting nature of these indices, it's got to be Walmart and Procter & Gamble. Yes, Walmart, you think retail, but Walmart's actually a consumer staple stock because of the massive grocery operations it has and what kinds of goods it sells. But take a look at Walmart and Procter & Gamble. Over the last year, Walmart, a real outperformer up 18%. And Meanwhile, Procter & Gamble has kind of come off its pandemic highs only up about 3%. But those two stocks make up a large chunk, Brian, of the consumer staple sector. Those are the two stocks that are the most important ones to keep an eye on, Brian. Back over to you.
1: Good stuff on the consumer staples and good stuff, by the way, at, you know, on the pun there, Dom, or, or phrase. I love it. You know that. Dom Chu, you, got mission, buddy. See you soon, I hope. All right. Joining us now is experienced Partner and Managing Director Sandy Brager to talk more about the macro markets. And Sandy won't ask you to comment on lumber prices or make some lumber pun. Do not work. It's all fine. Um, Let's talk more about these macro markets. Are your clients starting to get nervous? Are you hearing from people? Is now the time to sell? I've made a lot of money probably since the market bottom last March. What do I do? What are the main questions you are getting?
6: Frank, clients are asking about the froth in the market. We're working primarily with corporate executives, family business owners, and entrepreneurs, so people who are participating in the economy and their careers, and uh, they see froth, they're concerned, they're wondering... On the one hand, should we be cashing out on some of our winners? On the other hand, they're also looking at the cheap uh, price of debt and wondering if this is a good time to actually be leveraging up the portfolios. And so as we look out at the markets, we think the price we pay for investments matters a lot on the overall return. So we take a valuation driven approach and we certainly see areas of the stock market in particular with lots of great opportunity. Um, particularly in the U.S. small cap and international space, and we also see areas that we're really concerned about, particularly U.S. large cap stocks. So, uh, we're, allocating, so uh, we're allocating. uh we're allocating. Sandy, a lot. let
1: me jump in for a let second be because I want to. I want to ask you about something you just said. If so, clients are saying, "Should I borrow money to buy equities?" I think that's what you said, referring to the cost of debt. Is, is that a? That's right. You know, that, I've been right. doing this 25 years. That, that kind of comment does make me a little a little nervous. Sh- should we be borrowing money t- to buy equities?
6: We think that's a great, a great opportunity at some times, um, especially when the cost of debt is so low like it is today. You know, it's really easy to borrow against the equity of your home or against the value of your uh, stock portfolio. But as we look at the market, again, Brian, because we see um, areas of opportunity um, but also areas of concern. We don't think that this is a great time to be leveraging up the portfolio, but we uh, are keeping that lever available uh, for when the time is right, just not right now. But it's a good question to be asking. Arbitrage is, is always a great thing to take advantage of when, when conditions are correct for that.
1: Yeah, and, and are you still macro optimistic on the U.S. equity markets? I mean, after so, I mean it's such a monster return off the bottom. And valuations, I'm not going to say are are quote high, that's not for me to say, but they certainly aren't low.
6: I'll say it, we think parts of the market are really high, especially US large cap. Uh, and I think what Don was saying about consumer staples is really important in this environment. We think it's important to look under the hood and make sure that you're being very intentional about investments that you're placing in the portfolio, a broad market approach, like a 60, 40, uh, set it and forget it approach we don't think is gonna do well in the years ahead. We think you need to really be looking for the areas of the market where prices are low and return expectations are high. And again, for us, that's in the U.S. small cap area, particularly value stocks and overseas, especially in emerging markets. And those two areas have been doing really great since the fourth quarter of last year and continue to do well into 2021, which is really great news for for us and the way we're deploying portfolios.
1: Well, and great news for your clients, no doubt as well. Sandy Brager of Experience, Sandy, a pleasure to have you on wrapping up our Friday show. Have a terrific day and a good weekend. Thank you very much. And, folks, that does it for us as well. As a reminder, if you miss the show any day, you record it, whatever, check out our podcast on all the podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify. It's called, you guessed it, Worldwide Exchange. I'll be on Squawk Talk Texas in a few minutes. The gang will pick up three hours of great coverage. Have an awesome weekend. Stay safe. Be well wherever you are. We will see you right here on Monday. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses,